Greetings, friends of the great beyond. This is your ghost, I mean host, ready to take you behind the veil of terror and leftist critique. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. back to another episode of the horror vanguard uh i am your host ash and with me as always for another episode of the socialist seances is our co-host uh john also known as the liquor guy how you doing john 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 are you there ash, ash can, can you hear me uh, yeah yeah i can hear you now uh, where are you Ash, I, um, I don't know how to tell you this. Uh, I'm on the higher plane of podcasting. Uh, Engels and I are running a workshop on viral social media for podcasters who have shared their corporeal form. Uh, look, 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 I'm sorry, I'm gonna have to go, um, I'm, I'm probably not gonna be able to make today's recording. Uh, good luck without me. Yep. I'll be back. We have an exciting uh, guest today, the third guest for our Socialist Seance series, Stephanie Monahan. How's it going? Good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, you know, this is it's been great uh, getting getting to know you since we asked you to draw something for us. Yeah, I love when Twitter leads to actual spooky friendship. See that that is that is one of like the secret good uses of Twitter. That's probably one of like the two or three things that you, you can do on Twitter that are actually good for the world. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's really easy to call it a hell site because it is a hell site. But I have to admit that I've made um, a pretty impressive number of friends and comrades that have translated into real great relationships. Yeah, same here. I mean, like the part of the reason this podcast happened is because I met John over Twitter. So. Shout out, shout out to the hell site. Uh, sometimes good things happen in hell, and that's pretty sweet. <laughs> sometimes good things happen in hell. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's like a lost horror movie title right there. <laughs> so if you could uh, be so kind as to introduce yourself for our listeners who uh, might not be familiar with you and your work. Sure. Um, th- this question is always hard to answer. Uh, so I'm Stephanie Monahan. Uh I do a bunch of stuff. It's hard to it's hard to pick like an ID category. Um, I'm an illustrator. I'm a writer. Uh, I dabble in music. I'm a political organizer. Uh, none of those things are my day job. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm a, a cat mother. I have a very large cat sitting next to me. Um, she's my familiar who helps me with all of these activities that I do. Um, I'm an academic who never quite feels like enough of one. So an imposter syndrome ridden academic in graduate school. So I think that, I think that is the curse for all academics. You know, you're never, you're never quite there. Right. Imposter, imposter syndrome ridden academic is like redundant to say, but right. Yeah. All all of, all of those things mean the same thing (laughs) at this point. Yeah. Yay, academia. We're starting this one off really positive by talking about like the most fulfilling and rewarding career path to take. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's um I, I I guess I always feel like weird answering questions like this because I've whenever I 
write something or talk to someone about my work in a format like like this, it always feels like, well, I'm not like in graduate school full time or I'm not like in academia as as like the industry, I guess, quote unquote. But I still devote a lot of intellectual time to these subjects and go to night school and things like that. So it's weird. <laughs> yeah, I definitely, I definitely understand how that goes. I'm also like one of the academics who's not quite in academia anymore, although I'm trying to like weasel my way back in somehow. Mm-hmm. And I think there's, there's a lot more, especially as like adjuncting becomes the new status quo. There's so many more people who like academia is maybe what they want to be doing, but it's effectively their side gig. Right. Yep. Relate to that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty sure, pretty sure a lot of the horror vanguard listeners too. I know there's a lot of like aspiring or current academics out there that feel the precarity hard. Mm-hmm, for sure. Anyway, not to be a downer, but <laughs> right. Yeah. To get off the topic of academia, which, which is a little, a little, a little too, it's too dark for the horror movie podcast. I think, <laughs> I think we got to save that for somebody who does, who does darker content. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, the more, the more we do these interviews and have guests on the show, the more we kind of realize that the intersection between like, you know, like the left broadly, I know like the left is a really loaded term increasingly. Um, and horror is much deeper than we originally thought. What, what is, what's your personal spooky left history? You know, like what, what got you started as a leftist? What kind of led you down the path to where you are today? And also what got you into horror? And when did those two start to intersect for you? Maybe, maybe it's best for me to describe how I was led down each individual path and maybe that'll piece together how they, how they intersected. But, um, yeah, yeah, totally. Maybe that's the best way to do it. Well, I don't know. I feel when it comes to the left, I feel like my entry point is kind of similar to lots of middle class, urban and suburban youth, which is through punk music. I mean, I I grew up um, so I'm originally from Staten Island, New York, which is typically thought of as the. Uh, forgotten or underrecognized borough of the five boroughs. It's a very working class borough, but it's also pretty politically conservative. Um, mm-hmm. But I grew up listening to bands like The Clash and The Dead Kennedys, and I was really, I was blessed with very cool parents who were into music and like taking me to shows and um, really loved bands and lyrics. And I grew up really appreciating that stuff. And so just getting into political music as a young age, I kind of just took, you know, messages of being skeptical of American empire pretty seriously from a young age. Um, nice. And I think maybe this, I mean, I think lots of people get into leftism through punk music, but I think probably the, the moment it really um, ran in that direction was, uh, do you remember there's, they folded a while ago, but there was this magazine called punk planet. Yeah. Yeah, of course. It was an excellent magazine. I recently dug up all of my old copies of it at my mom's house and they they published interviews with like Jawbreaker and Noam Chomsky in the same issue. So, right. you know, like other like other 12 year olds, I started reading Noam <laughs> Chomsky, which is a super normal thing to do. I had a lot of friends and <laughs> I, I completely sympathize with this origin story. I'm really feeling this earlier. <laughs> Um, I was also, I was lucky to have a really, um, great, uh, feminist history teacher and she was cool enough to lend me a copy of Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States in high school. And 
again, that was a pretty rare thing to happen. I think oh, yeah. a lot of people in my, in my all girls Catholic school, but also in Staten Island in general. Yeah. I think I was pretty interested in, in left politics or at least reading like left ap- academics at a pretty young age, but I didn't really get involved in any activism or organizing work until college. Um, mm-hmm. I was part of a, a campus labor organizing group that did um, solidarity with uh, campus custodians at the College of William and Mary. Um, William and Mary, uh, for those for those who don't know, it's like a very, very pretty, very historical liberal arts college right in the middle of colonial Williamsburg, Virginia. So it has, it's like the second oldest college in the country. It was, you know, built by slaves. It owns slaves. It has a really um, troubling history and is also just, you know, intrinsically tied to like the creation of America, basically. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, but, um, there's a surprising amount of, um, I wouldn't say there's like a huge leftist community there, but the community that is there is, um, super passionate. And a lot of people I went to school with wound up, um, wound up uh, continuing to be organizers either for their career or at least like leftist academics. Um, so there was a, a campus uh, labor organizing group called the Tidewater Labor Support Committee that led like a living wage campaign with campus uh, uh, custodians. And that was sort of uh, more of my introduction to like socialist organizing and not just uh reading about socialism and, you know, identifying as an anarcho-syndicalist without understanding what that meant and <laughs> things like that. Um, but now I organize primar- primarily with a NYC DSA, which is Democratic Socialists of America. Yeah, that, um, is, that, that is a fantastic, like, left origin story, because I know, I know I myself, like, that, that is pretty much one-to-one what happened to me. Bar bar being in a Catholic girls' school that that never quite uh, was part part of my backstory. Um, but if I could if I could pull it back for for just a moment, I think this this might be something uh, that that would be of interest to our listeners. What were some of what were some, like you mentioned Punk Planet, uh, but what were some of like the punk bands that kind of like got you thinking about I guess broadly left and political and social issues? When I was younger, I mean, definitely bands that. I don't really like as much anymore. Like I was definitely oh, yeah. <laughs> like, a big, uh, like a big leftover crack fan, which Same. yeah, I'm really super into that anymore, but also like some folk punk bands like mischief brew. Yep. But for me, probably the, the biggest one who I still love to this day is propagandi. Propagandi yes. was a huge, a huge band, uh, a huge band for me in terms of just like, uh, they walk the walk in addition to talking the talk. Um, and obviously, like, I feel like the, the go-to bands like Fugazi, but I feel like I can't even say that anymore because of Beto O'Rourke. He really, like, ruined it for me. <laughs> it, it is just, like, everything, like, like now when I see kids skateboarding, my initial reaction is, like, damn centrists. <laughs> I yeah, that's... Um, but, yeah, Propagandi was such a big band for me in terms of, like, you know, there are bands that really lived, like, the DIY ethos and articulated their political views that way, and there are bands that you could sort of tell what their politics were based on like the causes that they lent support to, but propaganda yeah. for me, I'm like, this is a band that very clearly, very clearly and intentionally articulates politics in a super explicit way. Yeah. That for me was just like a game changer. 
yeah I've, I've had i've had like the same experience with propaganda and like I, I still listen to them and like there's just so much to learn from their music it's just phenomenal mm-hmm. and embarrassingly like also a lot of leftover crack in my past oh and choking victim and like the general crack rock family of music yeah i mean so- sometimes i can definitely still get in that <laughs> mindset where i've joked before that oh wow in high school i listened to a lot of a lot of leftover crack and uh, thought their lyrics were really cool. And then the pendulum sort of swung in a slightly more uh, liberal direction for me. And then you realize the pendulum is actually just like a wrecking ball where it swings back <laughs> really hard. And you're like, they were right about everything. <laughs> yeah, I can sympathize with that. Yeah. You know, ex- except how some of them conduct themselves in their own lives. But yeah, yeah, that's um pretty, sure. pretty yeah. accurate there. <laughs> But a uh, topic for another podcast, I, I suppose. So, so that cover that covers that's re- that's really interesting. You know, I, I really I really find it um, heartening in a way that a lot of us kind of you know it's 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 like some weird cosmic pinball machine, and we kind of just ricochet off the right cultural pieces, but then we all wind up together unified around political causes. Yeah, it's it's nice to think of it that way. Going going on to the spookier half of of this discussion, what what got you into horror? Like you are, I know the maybe the first we've interviewed, but you're a legitimate horror artist. This is really this is really exciting exciting for me. I'm used to talking to like academics and people who write about things who people who write about people who write about things. Uh huh. You know, so this is like removing a layer of abstraction for me. Yeah, that's interesting. I've never thought of myself as like a horror artist, but I should probably just accept it because that makes up like the the bulk of where I direct my <laughs> energy, I think. I've always been into horror, or at least I've always been into spooky stuff. And I don't really have like an origin I can point to because I feel like I've just, for as long as I can remember or been alive, just been um, obsessed with ghost stories, obsessed with hearing about like which houses in my town were haunted. I know Amazing. This, I do. I do remember like before I was allowed to rent rated R movies. I remember asking my mom's friends to like, tell me what happened in movies like Candyman. Like, can you just tell me everything that happens in this movie? That's uh, awesome. <laughs> but again, I was blessed with, uh, I was blessed with cool parents. They let me watch pretty much, um, whatever I wanted to for better or for worse. Um, and I remember, I think the first, I'm pretty sure the first rated R movie I ever saw was Scream. So really interesting. Yeah. And I remember like going to Blockbuster with my mom and it was like our Friday night ritual. And I was always, you know, I think like many of uh, your listeners and people who you probably had on the show were probably just like enchanted by VHS covers and the artwork on them. And it really informs a lot of like what you think about horror films. So I would just like walk up and down the aisles, like staring at um, the covers for movies like dolls. I was like obsessed with like the super detailed, like painted covers of a lot of those like eighties and nineties horror VHS tapes. And um, my mom pretty much just like couldn't find a movie she wanted to watch and was like, I give up. We're renting scream. And I was like seven when that film came out (laughs) (laughs) and I think it kind of just I mean transformative but also maybe wrecked me because I just became obsessed with like every single weekend renting like five horror movies and just plowing through all of them and that just became my life and never stopped. (laughs) (laughs) That is awesome. Um, Yeah so I've always been obsessed with spooky stuff but I think uh, 
I think actually this story probably winds up in the same place as the leftist politics story, where it was living with Virginia, living in uh, the state of Virginia, like a place that just has like so much contested history and is so haunted. Like, I don't know. It's like the, I mean, the ghost stories at the college of William and Mary, just that place alone, let alone the whole state of Virginia just fascinated me. And, you know, befriending people who were so into the urban legends of where they grew up in that state really just informed a lot of what I was thinking about in history at the time. I was an American studies major. So, Mm -hmm. Um, I was writing a lot about film and thinking a lot about American history. And I ended up writing, um, my undergrad thesis on legend tripping. So basically when young people, uh, visit, um, mostly haunted sites, not always, but whenever, whenever young people go to like make a pilgrimage to a haunted place and then perform some sort of ritual that makes the history of that place come alive, uh, the anthropological term for it is legend tripping. I just became obsessed with this concept and I feel like I'm going off on a tangent, but, uh, I, I mean, just... this, this is a fantastic tangent though. Okay, <laughs> good. Um, everything just sort of merged for me in terms of like feeling that the things that I was obsessed with when I was younger of like always wanting to know like which houses were haunted and what crazy thing happened in this place that it had some, it had some like larger, cultural context and and meaning for why it made me feel a certain way. And um, for me, the book that changed my life, at least like in this intellectual space, is um, this uh, sociologist named Avery Gordon. She writes a lot about, she writes a lot about like war and trauma and displacement, but she wrote this book called Ghostly Matters, which is, I mean, it's beautiful, it's beautifully written, but it's also just fantastic. She's a big um, influence on affect theory but um, she basically describes haunting as like the past calling out for a wrong that needs to be righted in some way, like some sort of like all haunting and the uncanny is is just like lingering, lingering discomfort because something needs to be fixed. There's some history that hasn't been reckoned with, reckoned with. And that spoke to me so much just in terms of anything spooky, but also just a the places that you wind up uh, becoming obsessed with going to because something really horrible happened there. And Staten Island has a ton of them. It totally just like defined what I thought was so interesting about that place that I grew up in. And to me, that really tied haunting to uh, politics, basically, of like we're constantly in this mode of trying to change the world around us and fix the things that we only learn through like the lingering of history and haunting as the past catching up with us constantly over and over again. And us trying to, us trying to fix that and like put ghosts to rest basically. So I think to me, that's where, that's where like the spooky left really comes together. That does, that does get me thinking about uh, horror films quite, quite appropriately. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so what are, what are some horror films that kind of, if we if we could take a legend tripping detour, if if you'll like indulge me, sure, yeah. Um, what what are some horror films uh, for you that are are really really in dialogue from with legend tripping? The ultimate legend tripping film that comes to mind for me is the Blair Witch Project, and I think re- that's I mean that's a huge movie period, but that's also a movie that really 
really like imbued everyone with the spirit of what legend tripping is partially because it's found footage and it's like putting you in the position of the people who are already kind of doing that. Um, but also just the way the film was released and sold as an actual legend as well. And kind of took that practice online in a way that I've seen like legend, legend tripping really, you know, become an online phenomenon as well in terms of like a lot of legends just being created on and propagating like via the internet as opposed to like more traditional quote unquote oral tradition. But I mean, in addition to just being, I feel like one of the most effective horror films I've ever seen, like the Blair Witch Project is a huge one. I mean, I feel like this is, it's kind of present in, in so many horror films, even if they're not explicitly about this subject, because I feel like in general, filmmakers are putting on film like these images and feelings that I feel like are so deep rooted in people's childhoods and just what shaped them in their own towns growing up. An interesting example actually is so one of my favorite, um, one of my favorite urban legends, especially in Virginia. And I use this as like a case study in this paper because I'm obsessed with it is, uh, have you ever heard of bunny man bridge? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Oh man. Okay. Go off, go off. (laughs) So, um, Bunnyman Bridge is this like railroad bridge in Clifton, Virginia, part mm-hmm. of North Virginia. And I've been there a few times. It really is a strange place because um, the front wall of the bridge, it's like a stone front wall that's just completely flat and completely white. And you drive off the highway down this like winding road through the woods and you keep like turning and turning and turning and there's no street light so it's totally dark and then all of a sudden you make one final turn and your headlights just reflect off of this white wall of bunny man bridge and it is a strange structure like very deep in the woods and it's not that many feet long like the tunnel that goes through Mm -hmm. it the other side but in in the darkness and with no streetlights you can't see to the other side so it looks like you're just driving into this portal basically and it's one lane wide so once you drive there the only way to turn back around is to drive through the bridge to where there's an opening on the opposite side and turn your car around and come back out so this is a huge legend tripping spot and there's there's all sorts of stories that are tied to it but pretty much it's it's called bunny man bridge because the the original story is about um, a truck full of prisoners who were being moved from like the Washington DC area to uh, Lorton prison in Virginia. And the story goes that the, um, they get into an accident and the truck tips over and all the prisoners inside escape and they round up everyone except uh, two guys who were still lost. And they turn up uh, the dead cannibalized body of one of them in the woods and they assume okay well i guess this other guy is out here just living and we can't find him and he ate this other guy um and they continue to not find this prisoner but they keep finding these dead rabbits just like left all around this railroad Mm -hmm. bridge this story is a that story is not um real lorton prison wasn't built at the time but people have uh appropriated this legend of the bunny man who would like kill teenagers who came to the bridge um, as a way of trying to keep, keep real estate developers out 
of, you know, turning Northern Virginia into the suburban sprawl that it is today. So at the time, it was very rural, a lot of farmland, and developers would drive through looking to buy a lot of land to, like, build all these suburban neighborhoods and a guy would dress up as the bunny man and like scream at people and like chase them with an ax and stuff and kind of use this legend and the fact that locals took it really seriously to try to scare people away. So it's still um, a big legend tripping spot for teenagers. And every time I've been there, you'll find someone had written something on the wall. One time my friends and I went there and there was actually, there was a dead rabbit with a railroad spike driven through its neck. So you know, really gross, wow. but um, typical legend tripping stuff of people will go there and do something to signal some sort of participation in the legend or to, or to scare other kids that come after them. But this all ties into um, horror films again, because um, the director of Donnie Darko, Richard Kelly, grew up in Northern Virginia, was obsessed with Legend of Bunny Man Bridge. And that's where Frank the Bunny comes from in Donnie Darko. Really? Yeah. Oh man, that is so cool. I did not know that that's the, the uh, like hidden background for Frank the Bunny. Isn't that nuts? Um, and Donnie Darko may not be like a horror film, but that's something that like was probably, you know, like it is to lots of people who grew up in that area, probably just, you know, burned in his frontal lobe forever and had to be like purged out into this film. That's why I think, like, even if movies are not specifically about this subject straight on, there's just this spirit of trying to articulate this un unsettled uncanny that comes from just being a person in the physical world around us and the spiritual world around us and trying to reckon with that in horror films. Yeah, I, I really I really like the story of people kind of taking on the identity of the bunny man to scare away like developers. That is that is maximum Scooby-Doo energy right there. Mm -hmm. So I guess that that is sort of a, a long winded way of tying it back to leftist politics, where I think a lot of a lot of legend tripping stories, like a lot of horror films, in addition to dealing with um, fear of like the quote unquote other and oppression of the other, also like wrestle with a lot of like, you know, Northern Virginia is an area that has become like the epitome of like suburban nightmarish capitalist sprawl and this was a gesture of people not just taking on like a legend of bunny man bridge but taking up like the story of like escaped incarcerated people and trying to like hold on to some control over this land that didn't originally belong to white Americans to begin with there's just yeah. like a lot of complicated layers especially in the state of Virginia and a lot of southern states but just a lot of interesting stuff. Yeah, I really, I really like those notions. I, I definitely think that there's something about, especially the spookier side, and, and maybe I'm saying this just because that's what I focus on, but like the spook, spookier side of, of folklore and, and urban myths and things like that, that kind of attempt to uh, take back things that have been taken away. You know, like, like part, part of the reason I feel that we make these spaces haunted, cursed, uh, full of, you know, like psycho killers who dress up as bunny rabbits and things like that. It's like, you know, if, if these things are there, it kind of drives away all, all of all of like the capitalistic impurities. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, with all that said, it's a, it's a very, uh, very excellent uh, tangent. I feel like we just went on. But uh, to get to get to the heart of the matter, 
Uh, could you tell us more about uh, your work that you've been involved with, especially with the um, uh, NYC Socialist Feminists? Sure. Big left pivot there. <laughs> yeah, giant, giant. This, this, this is a 180 from, from the bunny man to uh, like, like leftist work. <laughs> so the Socialist Feminist Working Group in um, New York City DSA, that's, that's pretty much what my entry point was into the organization and still um, remains my favorite thing about it. Um, I joined... I joined DSA in like 2016 uh, mm -hmm. before the presidential election, but I didn't really get involved until afterwards, maybe in like early 2017. And I knew that the um, now now the healthcare campaign and Medicare for all has become like a much bigger thing in the national consciousness, but also in DSA organizing, but at the time it was in New York City, it was sequestered to the Socialist Feminist Working Group. It was the first group to um, take on uh, the issue of healthcare, uh, specifically organizing around the New York Health Act, which is the single payer bill in the state of New York. So um, I thought that it was really important that support for a bill and, and like support for socialized medicine was being rooted in a socialist feminist group in particular. And that socialist oh. feminists were like leading the work on a campaign like this. Um, I love the social fem working group because it's also, it's, it's not just all um, straight cis women. Um, there's a lot of different people in it. So I thought that it was really important that such like a diverse group was really leading the work on this. So that's how I got involved. And the, the healthcare work has expanded outside Sochfem at this point. Uh, but what really kept me what really kept me involved was uh it has like the most just the most awesome uh political education group in the whole organization, in my opinion. Um Fantastic. Uh, I I hesitate to say that it's the most uh the most radical group in DSA, but I kind of think it is. The uh the polyed work that um, the socialist feminists do is just so robust and so awesome. And they really create space for um, women and non-binary people to explore a lot of heavy theoretical work and a lot of work by, you know, you know, the big, the big leftists without being mansplained to basically. So uh, my introduction to it was um, a capital volume one reading group where um, cis men were not invited. So, oh, awesome! Uh, it was the only way that I was going to get through a book like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're really into um, building a lot of leadership, but also a lot of comfort with uh, socialist and communist theory. But they've also started doing more reading groups that are focused on transformative justice. They did a prison abolition reading group. Um, just a lot of uh, a lot of awesome stuff that really ties into DSA campaigns in a way that I feel like really strengthens the work that everyone's doing. That that is that is all <laughs> fantastic to hear. I like like ah like I love hearing about the work that people are doing, like like the on the ground kind of day to day stuff because it's all so inspiring and it's all so fantastic. We we have a lot of very negative things that we amplify all the time and, and very rightly so, and it is so refreshing to hear about the groups people are putting together, the work that they're doing, the networking, uh, the people they're radicalizing. It's just all so fantastic. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, sure. I love talking about uh, Sochfam. <laughs> well, I, uh, I am, I'm going to keep the train going then. Uh, so I think that um, 
this this leads into uh, one of the first things of yours that I came across, and one of the first things of yours that really like really got my attention was your uh, Day of the Woman zine. Oh, cool. As as we talked a lot about on the show, horror has a very complicated relationship with feminism. And you know, we talk a lot about the ambiguous nature of horror in the Gothic, how it can be read along uh, both and often simultaneously liberating and very restrictive conservative lines. Uh, you you have actively taken bits of established horror culture and purposed them to to left and feminist ends. So how do, how do you approach uh, the feminist horrific, if you will? Mm. Awkwardly. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. It's really hard to be a feminist horror fan, but I continue to do it because I refuse to give horror up. And (laughs) uh, I refuse to cede the territory. I don't know. I mean, Day of the Woman, that scene, I think, uh, explaining what it is to the listener, it's basically an illustration zine where um, I just illustrate a different scene or screenshot from different films that involve um, either, I mean, women killing men, basically, or seeking Mm -hmm. revenge against men. They're not all, like, revenge films, but uh, films in which, like, the center thrust of the story is um, women enacting uh, violence against men. So I think that was was just... uh, I open it with some statement that doesn't really even quite articulate everything that I feel about the subject because I think it's really complicated. Um, I was, I think I was just trying to get out all of the images from these films that I just was so fascinated by and try to explore what drew them, what drew me to them in the first place, because most of the films that I cover in the zine are made by men. And Mm. I hesitate to call a, a, many of the films that I included feminist, but at the same time, I think that there is still like a lot of catharsis that I and other um, women horror fans find in movies like Miss 45 and I Spit on Your Grave. And there's some more lighthearted ones in there like Thelma and Louise and stuff. It's not all like rape revenge films. Yeah. Although there is rape revenge in Thelma and Louise. Um, but yeah, I think it was it was a strangely it was a strangely personal zine for me and just looking trying to figure out like what I got out of these films if it was purely aesthetic or if it was partly political or just what can we tease out by enjoying these films that are predominantly made by men but are also trying to unpack masculinity in a way that winds up being oddly uncomfortable. Mhm. So I don't know. It, and it's not just films either. I feel like I like very aggressive, heavy music. A lot of it is made by men. A lot of it is made by uh, men that you find out, uh, you know, have behaved badly towards women. Um, a lot of the art they make is also trying to unpack masculinity and toxic masculinity. Like, what do I do from enjoying it? I don't know. I ask these questions a lot. I think that zine was just a way for me to, like, vomit out a lot of it but also try to like make it look very pretty (laughs) (laughs) Um, but i will say it was like it was strangely one of like the easiest things for me to draw i just i just had a really great time watching a bunch of movies and 
I don't know. The illustrations just like flowed pretty easily for some reason. I didn't struggle with it a lot. Like I made it rather quickly. But yeah, I think those were some of the questions that I'm still asking myself and haven't really found any answers to from making that. But I'm still mm -hmm. glad that I tried the project. So, so that's really interesting that they you know questions questions don't always have very easy answers and they they often take a lot of time to chew on to get something satisfactory out of that. Uh, you know, you mentioned that like as you were going through these films, like they have kind of not quite feminist, uh, but but still nevertheless trying to parse these ideas of of feminism and masculinity and things like that, and that the process of kind of like you know reviewing them and navigating them was was, was like awkward and messy. And I was wondering, were there any when you were revisiting these films, uh, were there any moments that, that that kind of surprised you or any kind of realizations you had about any particular films that that were unexpected? I mean, I, I had done, I, I had read about I Spit on Your Grave before, um, but I was really thinking mostly about that film when I was making the zine, and that's why I called it Day of the mm -hmm. Woman, because um, yeah. Day of the Woman was, and this story could be apocryphal, I'm not really sure, but um, what's the filmmaker's name? Mirzachi? Yeah, yeah, I, I'm not quite sure. Uh, listeners will know that my my pronunciations are always kind of uh, let's let's go uh, ambiguous. Okay, <laughs> cool. We're, we're on the same page with this one. But the um, the story behind like his inspiration for the film was apparently when he was out one night with a friend or family member, he came across a woman who had just been assaulted. She was looking for help, and they. Um, wanted to help her and they took her to the police station and witnessed all of the, the questioning that she received by the authorities and the disbelief that she was confronted with by the authorities and he, he said that he was struck by that experience and also like profound regret from having taken her there instead of straight to the hospital and he wanted to make a movie where a woman sought revenge against her rapists, against her attackers, and he called it Day of the Woman. Uh, the story behind the release of the film was that when it was sold, uh, it felt it felt uh, by distributors more at home along like the B movie exploitation circuit. So they okay. changed the name to I Spit on Your Grave. Um, the iconic poster is what it is. They have like that amazing tagline for the film and it was sold as an exploitation picture when the intent when the intention supposedly behind it was to do something very different and i guess i was just thinking a lot about that origin story and also like how yeah i think the film has been kind of reclaimed quote unquote i don't really know how i feel about that term and that concept i think it's really yeah. tricky i mean i have an i spit on your grave back patch that I sewed onto a denim vest. I get tons of compliments on it, uh, specifically from uh, women. So I don't know. I think that there is something that feels really raw about that movie that people respond to in a way that's different from like a lot of other rape revenge films. And I was trying to figure out like, it raised a lot of questions for me about like, does the intention going into this film matter? Because you mm -hmm. wouldn't know what that intention was if you didn't know about this um, story behind it, which, you know, who knows if that's the full story. Um, yeah. But yeah, that was, um, that was an interesting one to revisit, especially since I feel like I used to seek out a lot of quote unquote extreme films when I was younger. 
and now like as an adult i i sit with violence in a, in a different way so that movie was i think like harder for me to watch as an adult than it was um when i was younger and like trying to see as much like fucked up extreme shit as possible you know yeah 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 definitely I, I've, I've seen that film twice in my life and once once when i was a teenager and then once again a few years ago and it definitely hits a lot differently uh, after you've grown a little bit mm-hmm. i mean hopefully uh this the sense i get from a lot of horror fans is maybe that's not the case i'm not really sure <laughs> yeah yeah the the, the horror, horror community is sadly apolitical in a, in a lot of respects, which I think colors interpretations of things for the worse sometimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and especially especially with like, I mean, charged isn't even the right word for, for a movie like I Spit on Your Grave, like hypercharged, maybe like the, the yeah. most going on. <laughs> the most going on. It's true. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, definitely. Like, like I really, you know, I'm, I'm really, really appreciating your your willingness to not have answers to things you know like i think i think there's so much pressure to like especially like you know like like i don't i do not want to become one of those people that's like oh social media ruining our brains in the age where like everybody has a hot take 42 seconds after an event occurs <laughs> you know like like and, and you're kind of expected to like like have a take on everything immediately mm-hmm you know, like, like I really appreciate the space being given to chew over ideas, to be wrong, uh, to to really like give give weight and space to things that need them. Well, that's good because sometimes I just feel like, friends, I have no answers. <laughs> <laughs> that that does happen a lot. Maybe not especially with horror films. I just noticed this because of my curated Twitter feed. But I I do feel like horror is having a moment right now that's very complicated and there's a lot of like overhype and overselling of some things which ends up just doing a disservice to the film in general because people like go in with certain expectations but there is an interesting conversation I feel like that's happening right now this is all films I think whether or not films are feminist or problematic but I think because horror is such a charged genre in this area trying to find feminism or like reading resistance into some films when I think we should sit with them for a little bit longer, but also a wider conversation about like all of these horror films are about trauma. And mm. I kind of feel like aren't, isn't all horror about trauma. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Why is this a conversation now? I don't know. But I think that uh, this, this moves us on. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how smoothly, smoothly, but nevertheless, this does move us on. <laughs> to your art itself uh your art is amazing you know like like as, as i was getting ready for for this podcast I, I i you know i visited your portfolio site and i was flipping through things and looking for stuff and like really dig your style it uh, is yeah. so good like the the characters are so real and honestly portrayed and like the settings evoke this powerful sense of nature even if they're in like a car or someone's bedroom it's all just like really lived in with just this like slight veneer of nostalgia you know like 10 10 out of 10 i am a fan where can i get signed stuff we'll talk uh-huh. about that later <laughs> if we can talk about that for a moment like what kind of gravitates you towards your particular style and the the themes that you like to draw hmm. um i think Are, i really 
I think I really try to capture, I mean, you mentioned nature, people's bedrooms and places like that. And I, mm-hmm. I think I try to capture what these types of environments make me feel. Yeah. Um, and I think they have some veneer of nostalgia because they make me feel nostalgic or they, I don't know, they make me feel like I hesitate to call it haunting. Cause I feel like I use that word <laughs> a lot in this interview, but some, I mean, some sort of presence, some sort of affect. Um, and I feel like I, I do draw a lot of like scenes from films or characters from films, but even, even when I'm not, I feel like just the images that I see that I want to put on paper. So are so shaped by films, especially horror films, just because horror films have influenced how I see the world around me and how I interpret the world around me and how I interpret like presence or absence. So I don't know. I feel like I've been, I used to only draw people and now I kind of want to only draw like, um, decrepit like wooden fences <laughs> some tall reeds or things like that um fantastic like a lot of uh haunted nature um i did a i did a little a little mini scene that i threw together when i did day of the woman called um nature is a haunted house which is an emily dickinson quote and um it was just a lot of like kind of just spooky nature and then like an actual literal ghost thrown in or a spooky barn. I don't know, just things that resonate with me like that. But I think I, I, one that I have on the horizon is I want to do one that kind of gets at like haunted suburbia. You guys talk about haunted suburbia a lot and I really appreciate it because suburbia is very haunted and upsetting in that way. <laughs> Thank you. And I agree. <laughs> as, as, as someone who grew up in one of those like liminal spaces that started as rural, but quickly became suburban, mm-hmm. like it is, a very deep haunting, mm-hmm. Des- despite a, I guess, uh, commercial and shiny veneer. <laughs> but another thing about your art that I found really interesting, um, and, and I think this this ties in is I say ties in a lot. It's occurring to me. <laughs> but another thing about your art that I find interesting is that you you do a lot of craft and you also uh, make cassettes. You know, like these are. Uh, like analog modes that that have a, a rough time being compatible with like our increasingly digital age, and I was wondering if that if if that's an aesthetic preference or, or why why specifically are you drawn to the modes that you choose? Well, the easy answer to that is friends ask me to do them. <laughs> <laughs> it's a perfectly acceptable answer. Yeah, um, uh, I was helping out on um, a friend's tape label a couple years ago that's it's not super active right now it's on a little bit of a break because uh he's just super busy with stuff but um tape label is called a mirror universe and there's a like a sister tape label that's part of it that um uh my bandmate some other friends work on that does more like um heavy hardcore music called a serenity now tapes and honestly a lot of it is just like um cost uh tapes are way cheaper to produce bands can have a digital download code Mm -hmm. folded up in the tape so you can still get the digital files when you buy it but you have something that's like five bucks that you can stick in your pocket and drive home and like bike home at the end of the show so um i've been in bands i've pressed vinyl and designed for vinyl and 
I've decided that I never want to do that again because it's too expensive. (laughs) Also, but but when it comes to the actual like material of the tape and like designing J cards for tapes, it's way more fun than designing for vinyl because it's like making something that folds up and you have to figure out like how the different panels are going to be in conversation with each other. Like I tried to do interesting stuff with it or like printing on weird surfaces, like um, not surfaces, but different types of paper, like a, printing on vellum to do like transparent stuff like mm-hmm. i don't know it really is one of those things where it's just like um the cost like the, the cost prohibitiveness of something makes you do something more creative and figure out another possibility that that's fantastic and really really interesting like like i've also messed around with vellum for transparency and zines so i i really appreciate this this approach that kind of foregrounds the physicality of the medium itself and the medium as object i buy a lot of zines <laughs> <laughs> um and the quickest nothing wrong way, with that nothing wrong with that it's true uh and the quickest way to get me to check something out is to make something like an atypical uh size or print on a weird surface and mm-hmm. do like strange transparent covers so I get it. It's like once you once you figure out how to actually print your first zine, it's like you unlock something and then you're just like, I want to experiment in all these different forms and textures and shapes and sizes. Oh, yeah. And I think there's like there's a power to that, too, you know, like as you are you're, you're kind of reclaiming a lot of this like art and technology and skill that comes with printing and pressing your own like like, you know, miniature and sometimes full full size little books. Mm hmm. And that, that is just so cool in an age where everything is is atomized and outsourced and alienated. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, I go I go to grad school to study the effects of like media and the Internet and digitality on things. And yet I feel very detached from it. My day to day life in terms of the things that I make and like looking at and holding But that's how it goes, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> that's definitely how it goes sometimes. <laughs> To turn our, our focus back to the thing we kind of keep circling around horror movies, uh, which which I I'm kind of I'm kind of sure some of our listeners are into. Uh, not 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 100 on this one. The market research is still out, but I think I think it's safe to talk about horror movies for a bit. Horror is a massive sprawling category of film and literature and and art more broadly. What are you into? <laughs> what kind of subgenres? Any any specific film interests, directors, actors, actresses, authors? fire away oh man so many let me think um oh take 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 all the time this is this is the the most loaded question possible oh man i'll be so judged um (laughs) this is this is we are we are a horror uh opinion safe zone if you'll free to just throw out anything yeah well i i think that john carpenter's halloween is like one of the most important films ever made oh yeah it's um i feel like i've been on a big Full car kick recently. Mm-hmm. Super excited for Midsummer to come out. Oh yeah. I think it's time for people to get back into full car in a big way. Uh The Wicker Man is one of my favorite movies ever. Which Wicker Man? <laughs> <laughs> um, the only one. The Nicolas Cage one. I'm just I, I was gonna say so not the bees. <laughs> <laughs> not the bees. Um but yeah, other full cars, other full car stuff. I feel like um, I recently saw uh, uh, Eyes of Fire for the first time. Do you ever see that movie? No, no. It's weird. It's um, I feel like it's pretty underseen. It's about like a family um, 
like a preacher leading this like family and other followers in like the 1700s and the devil is chasing them, but also like inhabiting the body of this child. And it's a very strange, like American frontier, but folk horror movie. So it's like witchcraft and pioneers. It's a lot. <laughs> was that, was that 83? I'm just, I'm just looking at it right now. Um, yes. And oh my god, that that little devil possessed baby girl, I think that's a girl or something, is horrifying. Yeah. <laughs> I am gonna have to watch this. This this is uncut nightmare fuel. Yeah, it's definitely nightmare fuel. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> um, let me think. Aside from that, I'm a I'm a big uh Cronenberg fan. Yeah? Really into oh yeah. Just in just in general, I feel like he influences me so much just like his films, but also like I think a lot about the spooky internet and I feel like um if you're into any sort of like techno horror stuff, oh yeah. David Cronenberg is canon. Um what is, what is your favorite Cronenberg? Or or what favorite's such a hard question sometimes. So what what is one that's like just been really working for you lately? I finally watched I I, I succumbed to one of those Criterion flash sales last year. Oh yeah. <laughs> got um the criterion of uh the brood nice and like a lot of criterion flash sales it takes me a while to just like get around to actually watch the movies i got so i revisited the brood for the first time in a long time and that movie is just so good i mean videodrome is a huge film for me mm -hmm. yeah revisiting the brood has been pretty cool nice yeah the the criterion flash sales come for us all in time so I, I sympathize greatly with this. It's true. I mean, he's just, he's such an amazing, he's an amazing filmmaker, but also just someone who makes body horror way more terrifying than it already is. Not because it's gross and you're, and you're disturbed by imagining horrible things happening to your corporeal form, but, but more because like, like a movie like The Fly is heartbreaking. That's just like oh, yeah. an absolutely just emotionally devastating film. And there's so much emotional complexity in all of his films and a lot of interesting questions that he's asking while he's also like tearing people's bodies apart. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, like many people, am, am terrified of my own mortality. So I definitely just uh, watch a lot of Cronenberg movies to deal with that. But, uh, but yeah. <laughs> that, is the, that is the Horror Vanguard recommended way to process any difficult emotion is, is to find a Cronenberg film and watch it. <laughs> yeah, I've given worse advice, so... <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, yeah, uh, definitely same here. I've given worse advice than than watch Cronenberg movies to deal with stuff. <laughs> I just uh, rewatched Christine last night. Oh God, that movie wrecked me. Really? Oh wait, Christine, the car, Christine. Yeah. Oh no, I was talking. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say that's interesting. I've never I've never met anyone who's had such like a visceral reaction to the the possessed car film. No, I was thinking of um, Christine, uh, the movie with Rebecca Hall, where she plays um, Christine Chubbuck. 
the reporter who killed herself on air. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> a completely uh, different film right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that is about as far from Stephen King's Christine as you can humanly go. <laughs> yeah, okay, yes. <laughs> because because I do consider um, the Christine Chubbick movie a horror film. It's you're mm-hmm. describing like a descent into uh, depression that is just awful. Um, yeah, very different from the other Christine. This recently happened when I found out that... Um, Speaking of Cronenberg again, this this recently happened to me when people thought that I was talking about like the horrible Oscar-winning movie Crash. When mm-hmm. I talked about like how amazing Crash is. Oh, okay. <laughs> I could see how that would cause some confusion. Yeah. So apparently, for months, people thought that I was really into Paul Haggis's Crash, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> that that is the image you want as as, <laughs> as a film critic. <laughs> I, su- I suppose I suppose that that looks out in a way, though, because it wasn't the Christine Christine switch. Yeah, <laughs> that could have been. I mean, like, I, I don't know for me, that would have been like infinitely more awkward to, to, to live through people misinterpreting which Christine I was critiquing. <laughs> so something something we were talking about that, that as we're kind of wrapping up here, I want I want to tease out a little that we've kind of touched on a few times is is like the the apolitical nature of of popular horror fandom I, I guess would be how i would phrase it and i was wondering if you if you had any thoughts on that you know why perhaps uh popular horror is is resistant or negligent to the political or or if it even is in by your estimation yeah i wrestle with this a lot honestly it's a big area of confusion for me because i feel like um especially with my background of just like analyzing film films, all films are like all texts through some sort of sociopolitical lens lens. It's impossible for me to separate the two. Yeah. So, and especially horror films, I feel like horror is just a genre where politics are just so baked into the text, even if it's not intentional, that it's just inescapable for me. Um, I don't know. Horror, horror to me is just like about like the terrifying nature of existence, but particularly existing within any society. But it's weird. I mean, we were talking a bit earlier about how on the one hand, it seems like the content flow of writing about films in general has to like read politics into everything to a degree in which it almost feels like it's going overboard. But at the same time, I'm a firm believer that when uh, people say there's not ideology, that's probably where ideological forces are actually the most powerful. I really like that interpretation. (laughs) And and in no small way, because it completely validates my podcast. (laughs) Yeah, but I feel like, yeah, it's weird. Like we're we're in a moment where I feel like people want horror films to be explicitly political, but at the same time, like there is, I feel like it's almost mainstream culture and writing that's like seeking politics in horror. But then there's like a subset of horror fandom that is oddly resistant to that. And I don't know a lot of those people because I don't spend a lot of time with them. <laughs> but I feel like. Um, Everyone I know who spends a lot of time thinking about horror spends a lot of time thinking critically about it. 
So I feel like there are a lot of horror fans that are trying to do a lot of this work and parse this stuff out and make this conversation like the forefront of their intellectual work and and speaking to it. But I don't know. It's hard to wrestle with like the text of a lot of horror films in the way that it galvanizes a lot of fans that just don't seem to want to see the politics in it. Do you have um, any favorite horror authors or movies or things that were just like, you know, I know, I know we've talked about uh, the Blair Witch and things like that, but anything else that's just been like hugely influential for your life or like an author that you keep returning to or things like that? Maybe not an explicitly horror author, but I feel like someone who has been so so influential to like my creative work and also touches I think a lot of the subject matter we talked about tonight is um the comic book artist Charles Burns he did Black Hole Mm -hmm. I feel like body horror and spooky youth and trauma and memory and also just like his really stark black and white super graphic drawing style that was like the first graphic novel that when I was reading it felt like I was watching a horror film. Yeah. And, and if people haven't read Black Hole, it's just an absolute masterpiece that I've returned to so many times. It's just so, so formative for me. Uh, and as we as we close out here, um, you know, we'll, we'll end end with usual. Anything you want to plug? Social media, band, art. Where can we support your work? I'm very bad at promoting myself in, in terms of selling things. So I think my web store is still up, but I, I have a website. It's stephaniemonahan.com. It's just my name. So you can see all of my art and movie posters and things like that. I'm on Twitter at, uh, at shadowboxing. I talk a lot about socialism and horror films and post a lot of pictures of my cat. So if you're interested in seeing her, she's, uh, she's very <laughs> online, just as online as me. I'm not sure that I personally have anything to plug, but if you are in the New York City, Brooklyn area, I am uh, very much involved as a volunteer at the Spectacle Theater. It's a uh, micro cinema in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and we show uh, lost and forgotten movies, um, some radical political films, and a lot of really great um, horror midnight movies. We also have a alternating series every Sunday uh, matinee of um, Fist Church, which is a Kung Fu series. And then every other Sunday is Blood Brunch. It's a mystery horror movie matinee screening. And all of our movies are $5. It's completely DIY volunteer run venue. It's one of the last holdouts in the heinous hellscape of Williamsburg, Brooklyn. That's actually worth your time. So drop by, maybe you'll catch me in the booth and I'd rather plug spectacle than plug anything else that I'm doing, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, we will, we will definitely uh, put links to all of that in the show notes and make sure to, uh, you know, like like tweet out some stuff from spectacle so our listeners can get caught up if they're in the area or interested in traveling. Awesome. But it has been so good to, to finally get to talk to you. This has been incredible. Thank That's you for coming on the show. This was such a fun time. This is honestly like the best way to spend a Friday night. And now I'm going to I drank a Red Bull right before the interview. So now I can like stay up and watch a scary movie. You know, I, I just I just cleaned a pot of coffee. So I'm about to do literally the same thing. <laughs> All right. Well, Sounds thank good. you for coming on and we'll uh, definitely talk to you again soon. 
Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in, creeps and comrades. And remember, stay, stay spooky. spooky.